This is Nathaniel Cogley. And this is Eric Morrow. Welcome to another edition of Cogley and Morrow on Politics. Uh, We're glad you're joining us here today, uh, but we do want to remind you that you can join us regularly in connecting with uh, the issues that we're dealing with each week on the show, and that is through Facebook. On our Facebook account, we post uh, articles about the stories, reports, surveys, data, information that helps you to go more in-depth on the issues that we're discussing. We're also on SoundCloud. Uh, so this last week, as we posted on our Facebook, we had a little bit of a technical difficulty with the show airing about a half hour early, uh, but that can certainly be overcome if, if you want to listen not just at the time that we broadcast, and that's noon on Sundays right here on KTRL 90.5 FM. Uh, But that's also on SoundCloud where each episode is uploaded uh, after the show airs so that you can listen to it really at any time. But we're also glad to announce this week uh, that we are available via podcast. So you are able to download and follow us uh, wherever you get your podcast. So we encourage you to do that. Uh, That makes us maybe a little more portable uh, and available uh, so that you can engage with the critical issues uh, that we are addressing each week. So to get off with the show today, uh, this is our uh, Thanksgiving episode. Uh, so we had to, to uh, uh, include a little bit in connecting with the holiday. Uh, it's episode 11, so we're, we're moving along uh, uh, through our first 10. And uh, as we're talking, we've gained a, gaining a certain level of confidence in what we're doing here uh, on the radio and, and being able to uh, bring you things that are very engaging uh, on our part. Uh, But one of the things that we wanted to look at this week related to the holiday and, and of course a show like this that's on politics uh, and we know as as faculty members, teachers, as researchers uh, that you can connect politics to just about anything. Uh, but uh, the, this first episode is really looking at the politics of Thanksgiving and so you might be sitting there wondering wow, everything can be made political, right? Thanks, if we're going to make a holiday like, like Thanksgiving uh, in fact when I teach my religion and politics course uh, here at Tarleton, uh, if it's if I teach it in the fall, I, I tell the students early on, I say, well, one thing you can think about is that uh, through this course, you're preparing to go home and have a very en- enlivened and engaged Thanksgiving because you'll be prepared to talk about both religion and politics. Uh, so that always gets a little chuckle out of the students or thinking about, about it because those are the things that people sometimes, okay, let's just avoid that. Let's not talk uh, religion and politics. But here we are. We're going to talk politics of Thanksgiving, and I want to turn this over to uh, to my colleague and, and co-host uh, Nathaniel, uh, just to give us a little bit of background of this, and I, I ask that because one of the questions that I have posed uh, in our discussions on this was, why do we still uh, celebrate Thanksgiving as a holiday? Uh, and, and I can show you how political, or, or imagine how political this would get if a member of Congress was to propose that that Thanksgiving no longer be recognized as a federal holiday. Now, those of you that are listening might all of a sudden go, "Oh, oh wow! What? What? How would it? What would happen?" I mean, it certainly would raise a furor. It would um, uh, very become very political very quickly. Uh, but I but I ask that because it helps us to really think about why do we have this observance and what are the roots of it. So, Nathaniel, tell us a little bit about the background uh, to this holiday. Yeah, sure. And now that uh, Thanksgiving itself is done, but we're still here on Thanksgiving weekend. Of course, my family is still finishing up those uh, turkey sandwiches and the last pieces of pie. I'm sure you guys are chipping away at it too, Eric. Uh, I always grew up uh, thinking of Thanksgiving as a special American holiday that was secular in nature. It's about families coming together. And um, when you suggested this as a topic, I went back and I read a lot about it. And you're right, there's a strong religious connection to this holiday and in your studies of uh, church and state this is really um, an area that you have some expertise in so Eric we look when we go back we see that um, 
There was an early Thanksgiving in Plymouth that becomes part of the American folklore that the colonists in Plymouth had their first successful harvest and were able to do uh, some days of Thanksgiving along with the Native Americans that were in the area. That's become a big part of the folklore around Thanksgiving. But we see that this, uh, the concept of days of Thanksgiving had religious overtones and was celebrated throughout the colonies in many ways. Can you talk about this being a tradition that even precedes the United States? Right. So what you see early on are many uh, celebrations at different times. Uh, really, at that time, if you think about uh, pre-United States of, of America, you have the colonies not, uh, well, collaborating in certain ways, but, but not, not in very many. They were under their, had their own systems of governance. They had their, uh, made their own uh, rules and laws under their charters. And so uh, it really was an opportunity at that time to see that you had different systems kind of functioning and, and doing things in this way. And so we had a variety of recognitions of celebrations uh, that were very much tied to the religious identity or the, we'd say the dominant religious identity in each colony. Yeah, and we see that the Continental Congress under the Articles of Confederation themselves going forward, once the USA is established, did um, specify some days as uh, days of Thanksgiving. But a big historical moment comes once we enter into our second constitution. We have uh, President George Washington, and President George Washington is going to make an announcement of uh, Thanksgiving in 1789, and this passes the House and the Senate and is signed by the president and he has a, a nice long speech. It includes this single passage here. I do recommend and assign Thursday, the 26th day of November next to be devoted by the people of these states to the service of that great and glorious being who is the most beneficent author of all the good that was, that is, or that will be. So we see an effort uh, on the national stage here with George Washington to call for a day in that specific year of 1789. I thought was interesting a number of things. Um, one, um, historians are mixed on, on George Washington's religious persuasion. He definitely did attend some Christian churches. Some historians believe him to be deist uh, in that he believes in God and that the evidence of God comes from nature but doesn't believe in specific holy books or specific prophets. So we find some of this uh, language very generalized in nature in terms of God and the author and the provider. We also have some pushback at the time from some members of Congress. One, Thomas Tudor Tucker, uh, who seemed to have a great career. He was a, a longtime treasurer of the United States and a, and a hero in the war. Uh, but he was opposed to the federal government doing this. He thought the state government should be doing this. Um, so I think these are two interesting dynamics that play out early on, federal versus state. And then also, is this a generalized you know, holiday for people of all political persuasions, or is this specific to some sort of uh, specific religious denomination? Well, this, this reflects the diversity that was, is already there at the founding of the country, the drafting of the Constitution. If you go back and look up the, the, the membership of the Constitutional Convention and you look at religious affiliation, uh, there's a tremendous amount of diversity already there. And so that, that really drives those like Washington, and then you look at Jefferson, Adams, and Madison, and others who are uh, addressing some of these issues and trying to find a way through, knowing that religious wars had torn Europe apart at times and had led to so much bloodshed. It had led to many people leaving Europe and coming to North America because for religious freedom. And so for, for these founders, the uh, religion, while it was very prominent, and certainly the dominant religion of that time was Christianity, it was Christianity in, in many different forms, mm -hmm. uh, all the way from very high church Anglican uh, to the most open free church congregationalist or the Quakers, uh, Roman Catholics. I mean, there's just a huge range of diversity and disagreement mm -hmm. uh, in terms of religious practice and religious belief. And so the, 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 the forces that really won out in this debate in the Constitution, uh, Continental Congress was uh, the, 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 this uh, focus on 
the belief in a God, in a supreme being. So this is in line with deism, whether Washington was or not. I think for political reasons, uh, he chose uh, as being the leader that he was, that he was not going to make this a point of controversy, that that uh, that individual religious faith or identity uh, was not going to be uh, a point of contention in trying to stabilize uh, a system of governance early on. And so this appeal to a deity uh, and, and without reference to uh, um, uh, to Christ or the Trinity or to a specific religious group uh, was in keeping with the outcome uh, of the Constitution, with the, uh, the focus in the First Amendment on freedom of religion. And also putting a, a barrier there, making it very difficult uh, for government, as we'll see, because this takes, I mean, we're still dealing with issues, First Amendment issues related to establishment and freedom of religion. But at that time, it was more of, OK, we're not throwing our support behind uh, the Anglican Church or the Congregationalists or the Quakers. Uh, everyone is free to practice based on the dictates of their their conscience. Going back to Roger Williams and his separation from the Puritans in mm-hmm. Massachusetts. Uh, but that they, uh, but they did recognize, as Adams does. Adams is very clear about mm-hmm. this in some of his writings that for the nation to have the level of, of morality uh, and the level of character that is needed for a flourishing democracy, religion has to have a vital role. So, so Washington's giving recognition to this. Uh, what we what we would look back and say the beginnings of a civil religion, a, a, re, a religious identity that could incorporate all of that diversity, but still show some connection to religious ideas, uh, and so this is where in the in in. Celebrating Thanksgiving and at least identifying with with this, as as we'll see as this develops, uh, it's the idea of there is an identity that being an American, being uh, a part of this new American identity that's forming because you have a new country uh, that most people at that time can. they can ascribe to because they say, oh, I do. I have a belief in God. And that, that's mm-hmm. a, an important part of who I am and, and, and a part of our uh, of, of the founding of this country, because you'll see so many sermons and so many proclamations early on that are giving uh, God the credit for getting through the war and for the uh, for the for freedom and establishing this new country and 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 the potential that it has again all of this is couched very much uh, in religious terms and religious language yeah and we'll see that um um, thomas tudor tucker is not a household name he opposes but if we look him up it's a pretty impressive career Um, and of course john adams would follow through and also do proclamations of thanksgiving Um, but our third president is a big name he is a household name thomas jefferson and he was not in support of the federal government issuing proclamations of thanksgiving. I don't think he's opposed to it um, in, in a private affair, but he feels like this is an issue for state governments. This type of stuff is not in the U.S. Constitution. Tenth Amendment leaves other things to states. And maybe a separation of church and state is called for in the First Amendment. And so we see there a big name, part of our founding, a big founding father, Thomas Jefferson, was opposed. And of course, he was opposed to a lot of what the Washington administration was up to, including something small like this, uh, just on principle of state versus federal and First Amendment separation of church and state. Right. So this is all wrapped together, not just with his views on the role of the federal government, but also as a deist himself. So it's very clear to identify that that this was Jefferson. And, and even that, th- there are some questions. If you move out to the, the corners of that to say, well, did he even really believe in, in God or not? and Or was it for political purposes or given the... the, the predominant role of religion in American society at that time is something that he just recognized. I mean, remember, Jefferson was the one that took the New Testament and cut out all the passages that had anything to do with the miraculous, let me get it out, miraculous, okay? Mm -hmm. Uh, A difficult word when you're (laughs) full of turkey. Uh, uh, But uh, the uh, so he he edited the New Testament to uh-huh. to mainly down to statements about character and morality and and those kinds of things. So so I think it's a mixture of things here that we see with Jefferson. But that's why I raised the question: What if someone was to propose that today? Here you have a, a revered founder uh, of our country uh, that that this was or was not his his faith uh, that that. 
uh, chose not to do something that his predecessors had done, uh, but was you know unable to do it. I mean, politically today, I would say something like that would be uh, almost political suicide to yeah. a certain degree mm-hmm. because uh, it is so wrapped up in in our identity uh, and. And and it became that way. So at Jefferson, it was a time when maybe that was not so much the case in terms of presidential practice. But then you move past that into uh, the 19th century, and that be- begins to become more ingrained into American identity, uh, especially in relationship to uh, not just the, the, the president, uh, but also where do we find a, a role for religion in public life that m- the majority of people can accept? Mm-hmm. And we do see, so early on in the U.S., it was, it was inconsistent. Washington did the proclamation. Jefferson did not. Um, but if we follow the history forward going into the 19th century, history gives credit a lot to a, a, a woman by the name of Sarah Josepha Hale. And she was editor of a very popular Boston ladies magazine. So she was very active in, in the public And she had about a 40-year crusade writing letters to governors, ministers, newspaper editors, and even incumbent presidents to try to encourage them to embrace as a holiday uh, a day of Thanksgiving, following on the pattern of the last Thursday in November that Washington had done. Uh, Lincoln... President Lincoln in 1863 receives this letter from Ms. Hale and Lincoln in a time of civil war reads the letter and acts upon it. And Ms. Hale said that many presidents before him had not even responded to her and Lincoln acts and issues a national proclamation which sticks with us today establishing Thanksgiving, not just as a state holiday, but as a common national holiday throughout the union. It's a beautifully written, it's a Lincoln written thing. He's very good with prose. Um, it's long. I'll just read this, this last part and then hand it over to you. So we have a time where he's saying Thanksgiving and also it's a time of civil war. Um, I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States and also those who are at sea and those who are sojourning in foreign lands to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November next as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent father who dwelleth in the heavens. And I recommend to them that while offering up ascriptions justly due to him for such singular deliverances and blessings, they do also with humble penance for our national perseverance and disobedience commend to his tender care all those who have become widows orphans mourners and sufferers in the lamentable civil strife in which we are unavoidably engaged and fervently implore the interposition of the almighty hand to heal the wounds of the nation and to restore it as soon as may be consistent with the divine purposes to the full enjoyment of peace harmony tranquility and union. Eric, what do you think? So, this is a very theological uh, text and statement. It's on the one hand, it's it's Thanksgiving, so just before the portion you read, uh, there's a, a few things that Lincoln refers to in terms of our freedom, the 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 bounty of the harvest, the the great resources that that the land has given to the people and the prosperity that it has given to to it. And his view in this letter uh, of the of the Civil War as a scourge is actually looked at as as divine punishment. And so for the inability of people to be able to accept one another and to work through their differences within a framework of governance that allows for contention to be addressed and, and, and divisiveness without violence. Okay, that's one of the things that we, we look at today in terms of the rule of law and that, that we, we settle our political differences within the forum of, of a legislative process and through representative democracy. And so he saw the failing of this on the part of the American people to hold to that as then deserving of divine punishment. And so he mentions their perverseness and disobedience. I mean, the, the very, very strong words mm-hmm. to say that, that we need to uh, ask God for forgiveness. And so he's, he's, he's 
calling on the people of the country at a time when the tide in the war is turning. Okay, the Union has the upper hand, but it's been with with tremendous costs. Yeah. And so he's calling on the people to be thankful that 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 things are turning and that that we still uh, we still have uh, the resources that we have. We 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 have our freedom, uh, but we also have seen what the cost of that has been. And so it, it's very. Uh, I think it's at a time in, in understanding Lincoln and his life and his his depth of reflection on things like that. So that letter comes at a time when it really I think challenges him as as president to to in terms of his reflection on all of this and trying to express it to the people in a way uh, that moves it to a level of uh, of of meaning of let's let's try to make try to make some sense of this uh, let's try to find a solace in our faith uh, and in God and that knowing that if 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 we repent uh, of, from our failings that 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 repentance can then lead to blessings and to uh, being able to move forward with this. And so all of this, again, very theological, calling upon the religious identity uh, and the religious uh, uh, expressions and uh, of the people of the country uh, to try to, to move above what's what's happening uh, in in the, in the war itself and think of this on a higher level and how to move forward it's very much a glasses half full statement you know there's a civil war going on very damaging but he's ha- talking about the bountiful harvest in the previous year the healthful skies and a lot of these religious overtones as you uh, reference um, so obviously this sticks I mean Thanksgiving is a is a huge American holiday it was always my favorite growing up I get to see cousins aunts uncles that I had seen all year um americans love thanksgiving and they love spending thanksgiving with their family uh so this idea of a national holiday of thanksgiving has really stuck and become a part of american culture i'm not so sure that it's kept its religious tone i mean i just growing up as a young man i always knew christmas had a religious uh, connection to it but i never even knew thanksgiving had a religious connection to it and i had to go back and study these things that, that you sent me to help establish that very much that was very much in in terms of uh, forming and shaping this holiday so it seems to have stuck eric at a national level for the usa big part of our political culture but the religious connection there to god has sort of faded over time right it has and and i think that shows on the one hand why this is a very unique american holiday uh that that it does have very the the origins that it does have within times of 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 hope and potential if you look all the way back to uh the uh, uh the establishment of the massachusetts bay colony and the the pilgrims and and all the uh, all the things that that we associate this. I went to my son's Thanksgiving play, and they're dressed as pilgrims and turkeys <laughs> and uh, and so forth, just to to, to uh, show that connection. But then, when we look at this, and we look at what what happened during the Civil War with Abraham's proclamation, Abraham Lincoln's proclamation. Uh, we, we bring it into modern times, and yes, it is a very unique American holiday, which distinguishes it from Christmas, which has origins in other parts of the world and is celebrated and, and looked at in many different ways. But but we we can still see that there are elements of what we would call this civil religion, and, and, and we have it in a way of saying – uh, that civil religion itself has adapted over time as the country has become more diverse, as we'd even say it's become more secular, uh, fewer people, uh, or, or, or as we see the studies and surveys go, that, that fewer and fewer people either identify with a religious confession, they may believe in God, but they identify, they don't identify with a specific denomination or church or a religious organization, uh, or they don't. Uh, uh, they identify as non-believers. They don't uh, as atheists or agnostics, and so forth. So, so th- those have had an influence on on what we would call civil religion, uh, to the point where civil religion is not just religious elements of a religious identity. I think it's now elements of both a religion and a secular identity. So there's elements of Thanksgiving. Uh, getting together with family well that can have religious connections or not uh, being thankful I mean it's a, mm-hmm. it's an attitude mm-hmm. it doesn't have to have a religious uh, a foundation uh, 
but then you look at other elements. It's it's football. Uh, you know, people uh, saying, "Oh, we've got to watch these games," or we always have Thanksgiving Day. Th- this is a part of American culture. Yeah. These are elements of of our culture uh, that again are shared. Remember, Lincoln was appealing. Washington's appealing to the shared identity, elements of of a religious identity. So we don't see that as strong as it as it once was. We have a lot more diversity. Uh, uh, a lot of this uh, the scholarship that's looked into the changes of American culture look back to the turn into the new millennium and that uh, in the uh, by 2000 we've become so uh, uh, diverse uh, across our country in terms of, of religious identity and or those without a religious identity that the capacity for civil religion uh, to to just be uh, only focused on religious elements has has really broadened and it's broadened to say what are the elements of an American identity and American culture that the majority of people prescribe to uh, because there ha- that in and of itself becomes political it becomes a point of reference to where uh, those who are running for office or those who are serving in the country can make reference to and being able to connect with more people in terms of their their American identity and what 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 connects them to the country, what connects them to these broader ideas of and ideals of, 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 of what we affirm in terms of our governance, in terms of our, our freedom. And, and so it, for this, it really becomes even it becomes more challenging. Uh, you still see that reference to God, though. Now, we haven't seen it with President Trump as much as we did with previous presidents, where you can go all the way back uh, to Nixon, who was the one that began to say, God bless America, and, and, and said it infrequently it wasn't uh, wasn't as frequently as you would hear with um, Reagan who began to use it more uh, and then even with George W. Bush and, and to the point where it was almost expected that every time a president concluded a public address that they would say God bless America uh, again those are elements of that civil religion that are that are meant to try to connect with an identity an, an American identity that has both religious and I think now is what we would say secular uh, elements infused in it as well. It's an interesting combination. You combine the word civil with religion, and we think of civil of or pertaining to citizenship, and we think of religion, we're thinking in a belief of God and the origins of the universe and humanity, kind of bigger than any particular state or sovereignty. And when we connect those two, that's a very interesting combination to say it's a, a civil religion. And we do hear in America ideas of American exceptionalism and, and certain ways that phrases that we have that combine the state and church together. Um, so it, it's a very interesting combination. It, it's one that that has been given a lot of attention to in scholarship, but it's one that's also uh, continues to be examined because uh, our society and its diversity continues to change. And to what extent, as we see, we look at with our, our democratic principles of governance, how 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 broad or how much diversity can these accommodate uh, until we see significant challenges in the way that we govern ourselves and the level of freedom that we allow within our society. Uh, So this relates directly to religion. How much religious diversity can we accommodate? And so one way that that's been accommodated is that you give larger space to a more secular identity, Mm -hmm. but you bring it back into this overarching civil religion that goes all the way back uh, to the, the the early colonists, pioneers that, that came to this country, goes through the con- Constitutional Congress and the formation of the new nation, the early leaders, this this reference to God, this uh, uh, reference to to uh, already a diverse religious identity, again, dominated by Christianity. But then as we move into the 20th century and, and then as we close it, it's, it's so diverse that no longer... Uh, you, well, on, on one hand, you have to move elements out that are not shared by the majority of the population and then identify other elements uh, that are. And, and so that you're still maintaining uh, this 
uh, re- religious elements that sometimes are much more connected to patriotism, to af- affinity to uh, uh, an American identity, uh, to to being and living in this country, and to ascribing to all of the ideals that are represented in that, much more so than any religious elements. Well, you know, I love predictions, and, and a lot of political scientists don't, but I would predict uh, Thanksgiving has carved out a nice place here in American culture, and they did give us with it a flexible enough template that a lot of people can put in what they like in terms of coming together with family and being thankful for those small things in life, family and food and togetherness. And it certainly uh, contrasts, uh, right? As soon as you get done with Thanksgiving, it's all of a sudden a material shopping spree for Christmas. So that contrast is so big to, you know, to be grateful to have your family and friends and, and simple things like food and stability. And then immediately we go into the shopping season and and quick transition. That's what makes it uniquely American. I mean, not just the holiday itself and the way we celebrate it and the way that that uh, we accommodate so many different expressions of it. Uh, but then you're right, it's tied directly to uh, uh, a focus on uh, consumption, uh, uh, the commercial commercialism elements of our, of our society and our culture. You turn right around and there it is looking toward the Christmas holiday, which we could discuss as well because they're, they're, we could say the politics of Christmas because when you talk about economics, mm-hmm. you know, why is it called Black Friday? I mean, again, those are those are uniquely American uh, elements that uh, uh, that are very much have political uh, connections. Well, I did find there was one president who tried to step on Thanksgiving a little bit, and that was uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt tried to move it up a week to give people more time to shop. And boy, people pushed back. They didn't like that. The Americans stood up and defended uh, Thanksgiving as the last Thursday of November, not the third. Right, right. It, that's how ingrained it's become. I mean, we, as we started this segment of just think of the, that politician that would step forward and say, or why are we doing that? Why are we still doing this? Is it for the same reasons? Uh, and then you would have the NFL, you would have uh, businesses because of Black Friday. And of course, then you would have a, an American population. I think where a majority still identifies that this is a uniquely American thing to do, not necessarily a religious thing, but this is so much a part of our culture and our our identity that to remove it would be why why would why would you do that it it would it would become very political very quickly well i agree with you that would not be a good uh, campaign platform for a young politician to embrace the ending of thanksgiving that would go nowhere very quick Uh, so yeah we hope that our listeners certainly enjoyed thanksgiving and enjoying the end of thanksgiving weekend we'll be back with more cogley and moral on politics after the break the home of Beatles and Beyond with Mo Minkazi. This is KTRL 90.5 FM, Tarleton State University Radio. Want to connect with KTRL off the air? Follow and like KTRL Public Radio on Twitter and Facebook for programming changes, event announcements, and more. Follow us now to keep up with your community-supported public radio station. For more information, visit ktrl.fm or find us on Facebook and Twitter by searching KTRL Public Radio. Dad, this is fun. I didn't think I liked kayaking. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it, but I think it's time to head back in. Okay. Can we come back? Sure. Hey, be careful getting out of the boat. It's a kayak, Dad. (laughs) I'm going to return the kayak. Can we walk home? How about a taxi? It's a short fare from your neighborhood to your naturehood. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a neighborhood park or green space near you. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the U.S. Forest Service. You're listening to the voice of Tarleton State University, 90.5, KTRL-FM, Stephenville, Granbury, Fort Worth. Welcome back to Cogley and Morrow on politics. We will now focus our attention on the great state of Texas. And we have some news coming out of Texas uh, from the Texas Tribune that Governor Greg Abbott orders state agencies to reduce licensing regulations and cut fees. And he's set a December 1st deadline for agencies to tell his office how they plan to limit regulations, reduce fees, and where appropriate, 
remove licensing barriers for people with criminal records. Have a quote here out of his um, his uh, letter to these agencies, Eric, that he says, sensible licensing rules, when necessary, can protect the public from legitimate harm. But overbroad rules stymie innovation, raise consumer prices, and limit economic opportunity. Overly burdensome licensing rules also discourage individuals from pursuing professions or prevent the unemployed or former inmates who have paid their debt to society from building a better life. So this sounds like a pretty significant issue for the state of Texas. How do you see what's going on here, Eric? So we're looking at an issue here just to explain to our listeners that looks at a wide range of professions. I have a little bit of experience with this having grown up uh, in a uh, with uh, in a family of not just general contractors, but my dad was a licensed irrigator, mm. which meant that he had to study and go and take a, a test. Uh, my dad was a, a one of many trades, so he was also at one point a licensed realtor, a licensed <laughs> uh, HVAC, air conditioning, heating a specialist. Uh, uh, but all of these areas are regulated by the state. And, and primarily, if you look at the history of this, uh, it was meant to provide professional standards mm-hmm. so what it, or the training so that the consumer could be ensured that the person coming to work on their water heater uh, or the person that was helping them find a property to buy was trained uh, with the, the level of skill or with the knowledge of the regulations, laws pertaining to that, that profession and to the the uh, to doing that that profession so what the state developed over time uh, there there were more than 200 uh, boards now that that, uh, that developed around different professions that were responsible usually these boards were made up of people from that profession uh, that would then determine the criteria uh, so we have, you know, the Texas Nursing Board. So here you have a lot of these related to the medical professions because uh, that is an area that is very much regulated, uh, has a lot of state and federal laws that relate to it, related concerning safety, privacy of information, and so forth. So, so the, the this became very expan- expansive, as we would say, and so eventually the state developed the Texas uh, Department of Licensing and Regulation to oversee all of this. TDLR. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. So here's a, a very significant state agency, given that they oversee all of these uh, uh, standards, the licensing process, uh, the fees that are involved with this. This is a point that that Abbott is bringing up as well as sort of the cost of getting these licenses. So why we think this issue is important to our, our listeners is because we uh, there are people, plenty of people out there who are in licensed professions. Uh, I, I need a haircut this afternoon, so I'm going to go to someone that mm-hmm. actually has a license uh, to be able to do that. Uh, so there, it, it impacts our lives in a lot of ways, especially related to safety, related to professional standards and training that, that's required. So so there, there's a couple of things, though, that this brings up. Uh, Abbott here is responding to pressures uh, in, in some ways, whether it's uh, in terms of uh, licensing fees or it's uh, professional associations uh, that are trying that, that do have a lot of input on the standards that people have to meet uh, and the tests that they have to take in order to get licenses. Uh, that that can be very a uh, contentious process. Uh, we are a uh, what we'd say a non-union state, so unions do not have a lot of uh, influence here in, in some ways. Uh, but that that doesn't mean that those pressures still aren't out there from advocacy groups on behalf of certain professions. So that that's one where it ties directly to Texas being a pro-business state. We're, mm-hmm. we're a state that uh, the majority of, of those in elected office affirm that uh, our work to maintain a climate that limits regulation, that limits cost to businesses to do business. Uh, the other Another element here is that he, he's appealing to a political culture that, that has a very negative view of government. And we've talked about this before, but th- these kinds of things become very popular because it's the governor, the most visible person in Texas politics that is out there in the front saying, whoa, let's put the brakes on government here. Let's look into this and see uh, 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 what we need to do to make sure that we're not uh, hindering people from gaining the professional uh, status and licensing that they need. But that also looks to a, a, a very positive intention, I think, here, too, is that you know, in our studies of government, we know that bureaucracy can sometimes grow for the sake of itself, mm-hmm. uh, that 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 
people in charge of agencies see other little areas that that okay we need to regulate this we need to control that we need and, and so it expands and continues to expand sometimes unchecked it is really within the authority of the governor here to look into these executive agencies uh, and to make proposals of saying how do we how, how do we check to make sure that we're not over governing now that is primarily in Texas a role of the legislature through uh, the sunset authority that they have to review agencies periodically uh, but again the governor here can have some input in that as the chief executive then the final thing that I think this leads to is that it, it, it and why this is important th- this is an area where governors have not, necessarily gone before. Uh, and we've seen not just with this and in other areas too, where under Rick Perry, who was governor, the longest serving governor in the history of the state, whose authority because of his appointment power to these boards and agencies was quite extensive, that, th- that they're pushing the boundaries of executive authority under the Texas Constitution. So the, the state constitution in Texas is very limiting on the powers of the governor. Uh, it's not a cabinet system. It's a plural executive where we elect all the top state officials the governor has only uh, other than veto power does not have a significant authority in terms of budgeting uh, and over the legislature Uh, and so one of the things that we saw under Perry and now we're seeing under Abbott is where are areas that govern uh, the power of the executive can be expanded that are not strictly prohibited by the Constitution? How can we give more authority to the to the gubernatorial office in Texas without running into a constitutional uh, challenge or problem? Uh, and this is one way. Aside from constitutional reform, which we've talked about in, in a previous episode uh, that you can access on SoundCloud, is that that uh, how can how can we change the dynamics of the role that the governor governor has in having a little more authority? Uh, and th- this is actually one that, that I kind of agree with because one of the critiques is that the chief executive that is elected by the people who most perceive is the governor and does have a s- significant amount of authority is not really able to go in and uh, evaluate how efficient government is in terms of our state agencies and so on. The the power there is really the appointment power to the boards of these agencies, then through those people can have some influence. But the governor can't step into a department and uh, other than in a financial crisis, you know, and say, hey, we're, we're not going to hit our projected revenue. Everybody needs to cut. On this issue, it's through influence, not through executive power. Abbott's kind of stepping around that now and saying, well, not only do I have the power to appoint people to these boards and agencies, but I'm going to act as governor to address issues that I think are critical. So how much of this is um, tied into Texas law, which would go through the Texas legislative branch and presumably be signed by the governor? And how much is this of this tied into agency regulations that have development that have developed inside the agency and aren't really uh, going against the law? It's just the law opens up this kind of vague platform for an agency to define codes and regulations. Right. It's very much a mixture. So you, ha- you have uh, regulatory law that, that the legislature has passed that has put these agencies in place and so that's where we have the sunset review process where every uh, decade or, or, or even less for some agencies they're reviewed by the legislature and the legislature has to pass uh, um approval for that agency to continue. So this is what happened with the previous legislative session where the 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 bill that would have re-upped the plumber's examiner's board. So to be a licensed plumber, you have to go through a process, you have to test, you have to be licensed by the state. Well, uh, that did not get passed in the session, which basically took that licensing away and at one point you know everyone said oh well anybody can be a plumber now you know (laughs) which you know for some of us that's the case you know if we need a a new uh garbage disposal under the sink okay i'm going to put that in well that that's one thing a homeowner can do but but there are other things that uh, that that are are related to that specialization and so what happened was that the governor then issued an executive order okay so instead of calling a special session which Mm -hmm. was costly Mm -hmm. which would have opened up other issues he issued an executive order reauthorizing uh, the plumber's examiner's board Mm. which again is is very new so it in a way was kind of circumventing that authority of the legislature in order to for reasons of safety for the profession and so on 
people would say, okay, sure, we, we need to have that, uh, but he wasn't challenged on it uh, by the legislature. Now, we'll, we'll see when the new session opens next year uh, or, or by the uh, uh, our next legislative session will be in 2021 if this will even be an issue or not. If it's not, to me, it shows a trend here where the governor is, is navigating in between statutory law that is administrative code that's been set by the legislature and then the regulatory authority of these agencies, which do have some latitude in setting standards. And so it's a very gray area into which he's inserting executive power. Well, that's interesting to look at executive versus legislative dynamics. There's also and sometimes in these businesses or these lines of work, Eric, a division between the those who are already in it and those who aspire to be in it. So I'm a former cab driver in San Francisco and you can't drive a cab unless you have a medallion that authorizes you to have a certain cab. Uh, and some people feel that, you know, it's important to have these standards to maintain quality within an industry. But people who on the outside may be wanting to get in feel like those who already have the power to do it are trying to cut off competition. They're trying to make it harder for people to get in. You know, everything is supply and demand. And the lower of supply there are for plumbers or or people doing certain lines of work, the higher of a price they can charge. So how much of this is a quality versus uh, trying to stifle competition in an industry? Well, I think, I think it addresses some of those uh, concerns in that, one, we do see a decline in professionals in some of these areas, uh, especially in Texas where you have rapid demographic growth, you have uh, growth in uh, the, the need for uh, health care, you have growth in the need for con- construction, new construction, thus needing uh, people who can provide those services and have that level of expertise. Uh, so I think this is a response to some of that as well, is that you have these professional organizations and these advocacy groups that are saying to the governor and to those in, uh, in, uh, in the legislature that, we, that there's a need to facilitate more people coming into the workforce in these areas. Uh, so I see that on, on one hand um, where we would talk about instead of unions here because again the power of unions is very limited in the state it's more of those advocacy groups on behalf of those professions that would look on this favorably to a certain degree now you know this is a very blanket request that he made and so it's going to impact some areas much more than others because the standards or at least the qualifications to become a barber uh, in comparison to a nurse, okay, right. they're very, very, very different. And I think where the the point of contention would be is if the governor or if lawmakers were to start going in and meddling with uh, these boards that are made up of professionals mm-hmm. who are trying to set standards related to safety and to to uh, 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 training and the and the proper credentials for for these things over against this idea that these are impeding. Uh, economic opportunity uh, for people in these professions. So in Texas, I think that's the dynamic at work, much more so uh, than um, uh, the control that, say, outside groups have over what the state is doing or not doing related to these professions. In terms of allowing people greater access to these lines of work, he specifically mentions uh, people who have been released from prison, who are re-entering society. And he said very much that he would like, um, he has directed agencies to publish lists of specific offenses that disqualify applicants from obtaining an occupational license as opposed to relying on quote unquote blanket exclusions for people with criminal records. Um, Can you explain how that might be in the interest of getting people back into society, back in work? Sure. it directly relates to the criminal justice process in Texas. We have a very low threshold for felonies. <laughs> so we have a lot of people who are convicted felons in the state. I mean, if you look at our prison populations, you look at the population in general, uh, Texas has always been a very, uh, a prided itself in being tough on crime, as you would say, like, mm-hmm. you know, let's just lock them up. That's the, the put people in uh, felons in jail for however many however long uh, and that's a whole area of policy in the state that we can go into in the future but so you have this population out there that needs 
that's able-bodied that needs to work. And being a convicted felon uh, does create some challenges. Uh, now, you see this being addressed across the nation and other states uh, with the drop-the-box campaign, where you have states that are... Uh, uh, say there should no longer be a box on an initial employment application where someone would identify as a convicted felon in order for them to be evaluated based on their skill and ability uh, and then be able to move into second or third rounds of interviews before that information is disclosed. And then an employer can compare, do I really want this person because of their skill or, uh, or does this have an influence? And it, and, and this is along that line of in that process of if you have this list, then you don't want people who have been convicted as felons for embezzling, okay, handling uh, financial aspects of a business. Okay, so there, there are very clear lines that could be drawn. And, and I think this is in that area. I think Texas is very far away from any kind of drop the box uh, uh, because of our because of the political culture and, and, and how crime is viewed, especially felonies, mm-hmm. because you just say the word. It doesn't matter what the crime was. You know, it could have been a possession of marijuana that, you know, in a small amount and yeah. someone's a convicted felon. So that so that so there are challenges there in the perception of employers and in the state in the political culture of the state as, as a whole. Uh, but I do think this is one way that it would be broadly accepted in, in, in giving, getting access uh, to people uh, for employment and for licensing in certain professions uh, that may have made, made that one-time mistake. And then they've got to carry that with them, but it shouldn't prohibit them from being able to have gainful employment. Yeah, well, part of not having crime is avoiding recidivism, where someone commits a crime again. We want them to be able to come out and be a productive member of society with a gainful employment, uh, things like that. So that's interesting, the way you talk about the steps to getting a job and kind of removing that from a first step, um, where after you interview someone, you have some other things to think about in terms of judging their character. Right. With this, in the in the licensing process, what this does, it gives, it gives another entry point. So instead of someone going to work for a business and then gaining the experience they need to get the license is that they can uh, go through the licensing process in some professions, be able to get that, and then be able to go out and market themselves, even though they're saying, hey, I'm a convicted felon for this, but I am licensed by the state to do this. And so that that I think that will be uh, beneficial. I mean, I think we've got a long way to go in that area in addressing recidivism and employment for people who are convicted felons. But uh, this is a step, I think, in a positive direction that may have inf- lead to other things. One final question. We've discussed uh, revenue for the state of Texas on this show before in other ways. And I know that these fees are associated with bringing in lots of revenue, both to the agency and the general fund. Um, is there potentially any impact here as they review these requirements yes and this is this may be where the uh, uh, where the agencies push back a little bit is that that's how they support themselves the the, the boards that's how they in some ways uh, a fund knowing that government resources are, are limited in in places in Texas uh, for Abbott it's a p- popular issue to say we're going to cut government fees just like property taxes let's ensure we never have an income tax i mean this is very popular language Mm -hmm. to use on the other hand there could be some issues there whereas the boards are setting these fees that uh there is some excess and and so i think he he's just asking for that review of it it's not saying well i'm I'm giving you a benchmark here 75 percent of the national average well that may challenge the operation of some of these boards in maintaining the standards that they need, the the issuing of the exams, the testing, those things that are required. So um, we'll, we'll see what that impact is and what comes back to him. It's a very short timeline to be able to look at all of this. So I'm not sure that most agencies are going to be able to pull all that together, especially with a Thanksgiving holiday in the middle <laughs> of, uh, since the request. Uh, we want to thank you for joining us today. Uh, Cogley and Morrow on politics that air every Sunday at noon on KTRL FM 90.5. We thank you for joining us today. We always try to bring you engaging and relevant topics with civility and depth. And so we look forward to being with you and offering what we do uh, each and every week right here on 90.5 FM.